Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Could you get a more pessimistic view of life than that? When he adds, what does a man gain from all his labor that he toils under the sun? We find someone here who is completely downcast, feeling utterly hopeless, it seems. Now, last week, David began a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's titled it, Meaningless Messages? Question mark. Because here, perhaps, is a combination of ancient wisdom with 21st century relevance. Actually, the book begins... Whoops, what happened? The words of Koheleth, son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's the word teacher up there under meaningless. Derek Kidner says this word Koheleth is an untranslatable title. The NIV calls it teacher. The AV says that uh, it's preacher. Both say it's leader of the assembly. And last Sunday evening, David decided that searcher was probably the most appropriate term. And I want to continue in that vein. As a searcher, Koheleth isn't satisfied just to leave matters with the very negative comments he makes in the poem, verses 1 to 11, that we looked at last Sunday evening. He wants to dig a lot deeper below the surface and examine why everything seems to be so meaningless. In fact, he becomes a social science researcher. And that, I think, I hope, will become clear as we go through the passage we're studying this evening. Now, let's read Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 to 15. It's 669 in the Pew Bibles. You'll find it useful, I think, to have... Uh, Bible in front of you though I'll put most of the text up on the screen and give you the reference especially for the benefit of people listening by recording Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12 I the teacher or the searcher was king over Israel in Jerusalem that identifies him as Solomon Though Solomon is not mentioned, the name Solomon is not mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. But surely, king over Jerusalem, and the very first says, son of David, King Solomon. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon here sets out in verse 13, he sets out his research proposal. And there it is. To study and explore all that is done under heaven. It's a fairly 
wide field of study, isn't it? To discover the meaning and purpose of life. So I have put into, well, my own words, his hypothesis. Here's what he's setting out to research. That the meaning of life is to be found in, and we will see in our passage this evening, four areas that he's going to investigate. Now, this is no armchair philosopher. He's an experimental social scientist. And he's going to try out things and put his experiences to the test. He's going to experiment in four areas of life under the sun. That term, by the way, is used 27 times in Ecclesiastes. And it means, as David said last week, life from a purely human perspective. There's one control variable. Go back to verse 13. To study and explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Wisdom, the correct application of knowledge. So he's going to test his experiences against a standard set by wisdom. Got it? You've got it all there in front of you. Here's his research proposal. There's his hypothesis. It's going to be an experiment in four different areas of life. And he's going to judge it all by the standard of wisdom. So, now, as in any thorough piece of research, before he gives us the details of his experiment, the researcher draws up an executive summary. It's not the usual way of doing it. And he gives us three tentative conclusions he's come to already Well, he's done it all, but he's telling us before he starts exactly what he's going to say. Look again at verse 13. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. Now, I've chosen the RSV version of that. It is an unhappy business that God has given the sons of men to be busy with. And I'm going to come back to that idea of God giving. To make it sound right, the NIV says, God has laid a heavy burden. It's God has given an unhappy business. He's obviously here, the searcher is obviously referring to the consequences of the fall. When God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. And that resulting painful toil God has ordained for all human beings we're all involved without exception that's life so that's his first tentative conclusion his second look at verse 14 the researcher has seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless at chasing after the wind Life is very frustrating because human beings try to catch the wind. I think that's a very striking metaphor. Good breeze this afternoon. Do you know where it's coming from? Do you know where it's going to? Oh, I know meteorological charts will tell you it's going around in a big circle and it's all traveling in a certain direction. 
But can you catch the wind? Remember how Jesus put it? Talking to Nicodemus. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it's coming from. You can't tell where it's going to. And try chasing it. Human beings are trying to grasp the unattainable. But of course they can't. And the result is failure and the lack of satisfaction. That's tentative conclusion number two. And number three, verse 15. A proverb. But of course then you'd expect Solomon to have proverbs, wouldn't you? He wrote 3,000 of them, the Bible tells us. And a lot of them are there in the book of Proverbs. But here's another one for you. And I've uh, put it into, um, well, I've given a, a modern translation of it. If something is crooked, it can't be made straight. If something isn't there, it can't be counted. Think away as hard as you like. You'll never straighten out life's anomalies. That's what he's saying. So the searchers' tentative conclusions don't give us much hope of finding the meaning of life here, do they? However, now he begins his experiments. Look at verse 16. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. And of course he had. And God had commended Solomon for asking for wisdom, if you remember. And then he'd given them all the rest he hadn't asked for as a kind of bonus. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. So he sets out to explore wisdom and knowledge. And I take it that to mean learning and intellectual prowess. That's what he's going to examine. Verse 17. I'll apply myself to analyze these, wisdom and knowledge, and to make sure I'm keeping a balance and I'm doing a thorough job, I will also analyze madness and folly. I think there's a very modern note here, even a postmodern note here. Hasn't our age experienced a flight from rationality? Think of the ingenious greed and dishonesty that recently brought the world financial system to its knees. I think of the cult of meaningless, the absurd, the weird in art, literature, and music, chaos theory. Let me take just two examples of what I call the absurd. Now, you may disagree entirely. If you do, please don't walk out. Tell me afterwards in no uncertain terms. I hope that's not what you last saw of your bedroom before you left home for church this morning. I better explain to people who are listening by recording that I put a picture on the screen of an unmade bed, very untidy unmade bed. Here's another picture. A sheep carcass with a head separated, staring at us from a tank of liquid. Actually, it's formaldehyde. Do you recognize those? 
Tracy Emin became famous or infamous, certainly became a celebrity, when she made the finals of the prestigious Turner Prize a few years ago with this piece of modern art. And of course, Damien Hirst became famous with exhibits like this, animals suspended in formaldehyde. And I read in the newspaper, just on, on Thursday, I think, that Damien Hirst, the paper called him that sheep-pickling artist. He made £111 million in a two-day Sotheby auction last September, just as the credit crunch was starting. So I'm afraid I exclaim along with the search in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless. But disagree with me politely afterwards. His conclusion? Soon I realized that this too was as senseless as chasing the wind. And he has another proverb. The more you know, the more you hurt. The more you understand, the more you suffer. So, the meaning of life is not to be found in the heights of learning or intellectual prowess. So, what next? Well, look at the beginning of chapter 2. Let's test pleasure. Verse 1. He says, I will test you. That's his heart he's talking about. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. To find out what is good. Note, he's got his field of study very much in mind. He wants to find out what is of value in life. And his immediate tentative conclusion, he uses two words in verses 1 to 3. One is meaningless and the other is foolish. I've called the first area where he sought pleasure frivolity. He tried laughter. Look at verses 1 to 3. He tried laughter. He tried cheering himself with wine and embracing folly, whatever that means. Note verse 3. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. Here was his control variable coming in on each occasion. He was quite clear that his goal was to discover, as he says here, what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So, frivolity wasn't going to provide the key to meaningful living. Okay, verses 4 to 6. Let's try creativity. Great projects, houses. The Bible tells us Solomon spent 13 years building a palace. Thirteen years. He was an architect. He was a builder. And verses 4 to 6 tell us he planted vineyards, gardens, parks with all kinds of fruit trees planted in them, and reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He was an engineer and he was a botanist. Indeed, the Bible tells us, and I'm quoting here, if you want to read all the details of Solomon, go to 1 Kings 4 to 11. Not now, but sometime. I think you'll find it intriguing. And 1 Kings 4 tells us he was a botanist. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon 
to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. That was the breadth of his study in botany. And, says 1 Kings 4, men of all nations came to listen to his wisdom. And he enjoyed it. All right. He tried frivolity. He tried creativity. Now he tried acquiring things. What about acquisitions? Verses 7 and 8. He had male and female slaves, and other slaves born in his house. He had herds and flocks more than anyone in Jerusalem. He had silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. Indeed, the Bible again tells us in uh, 1 Kings 4, right, chapter 11, that everything in Solomon's palace, all the utensils used were made of gold. Because it says, silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. And he amassed silver and gold. And then he had men and women singers. Solomon was a songwriter. He wrote 1,005 songs. A very exact number, but that's what the Bible tells us. Eat your heart out, Bob Dylan. And the list ends... A harem as well. I take it you know that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. (laughs) As David Dunlop would say, I'm not going there. And then then he ends it up by saying, the delights of the heart of man. Now I'm not sure whether he's referring to the woman or all the above. Result, verse 9. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And he adds this note. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. And he brings his control variable again. He's judging all these things against the standard of wisdom. And now... In verse 10, a summary. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward of all my labor. Aha. Therein, that last sentence, my heart took delight in all my work and this was the reward for all my labor. Therein lies the the clue to his conclusion in verse 11 he had enjoyed doing it he got involved and he loved it yet verse 11 oops sorry when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind nothing was gained under the sun. How sad. Here's the morning after the night before sort of feeling. He'd had pleasure. He must have had pleasure for years. But in retrospect, there was no permanent gain. There was no lasting satisfaction. And if you notice, he uses all the key terms to summarize his findings. Everything's meaningless. It's chasing up the wind. Nothing gained under the sun. You see, the real 
meaning of life is not to be found in pleasure. And in immortal words written 30 years ago, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, if a pastor in this church can quote Bob Dylan in the morning and you too in the evening, I'm daring to quote the Rolling Stones. (laughs) Because you see, from the point of view of the Rolling Stones, of those who set their standards by the world around them purely from a human perspective, that sums it all up. I can't get no satisfaction. So, what now? Look at verse 12 in chapter 2. He's going to contrast wisdom with madness and folly. You see, his first inquiry had dealt with wisdom and knowledge. That was learning and intellectual prowess. This time, he simply wants to know if being wise will give the key to life. And he will do a thorough job again by balancing it and thinking also about madness and folly. After all, as he says there, what more can the king's successor do than what's already been done? (laughs) In fact, he's saying, my successor's not going to be any wiser than I am. And he wasn't boasting. God had told him that. Is wisdom superior to folly? Is living wisely, rather than living as a fool, the key to life? And he sums it up in two more proverbs. I discovered that wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. Wisdom is like having two good eyes. Foolishness leaves you in the dark. And his conclusion... Well, that's obvious. It's self-evident. People, I think, nowadays would say it's a no-brainer. Of course, wisdom is superior to folly. But, but, look at verse 14, the last half of verse 14. I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. The fate of the fool will overtake me also, the wisest man in the world. Then, what do I gain by being wise? It's a rather mortifying conclusion, isn't it? If you'll forgive the deliberate pun. Now here's life's ultimate reality. Isaac Watts put it very well. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. You see, like the fool, the wise man too must die. This too is meaningless. I heard the saying, Peacock today feather duster tomorrow (laughs) so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me all of it is meaningless 
chasing after the wind. He wasn't going to find the meaning of life in wisdom, however wise he might be. Now, that verse 17 may be the conclusion to his investigation into the usefulness of wisdom, but the thought leads him into his next exploration. Hard work. Toil. What in verse 20 he calls toilsome labor under the sun. Look at verse 18. (laughs) Especially when he realizes that all the hard work he has done will be left to someone who comes after him. What's the point? And he even adds in verse 19, And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? What's the point? So, his conclusion. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Verse 21. Verse 22. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his, his days, his work, his pain and grief. Even at night his mind doesn't rest. Typical workaholic. This too is meaningless. And so the teacher comes to his final conclusion. He had set out to study and explore all that was done under heaven. His hypothesis had been that meaning of life will be found in, and there are the four areas that he tested, learning and intellectual prowess, he tested pleasure, he tested wisdom versus folly, and he tested hard work. And he, well, he gives us his results. At last, his findings in verses 24 to 26. Here are his conclusions. And I'm using the New Living Translation because it starts off, so I decided. So here come his conclusions. And what did he tell us? Number one, there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. What's he saying? He's saying that real life is to be enjoyed. Real life, what's it? Well, conclusion number two. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? In other words, real life is a gift from God. And his third conclusion at the beginning of Verse 26, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. In other words, real life is to use the gifts that God has given us. And for the first time, I wonder if you noticed, from the, for the first time since he started in chapter 1, verse 13, he brings in God again. He brings God into the equation. You see, the intellectual, the person with learning and intellectual prowess, the pleasure-seeking hedonist, the workaholic, all are missing the fundamental benefits of the life which God is offering. So how do we find real, lasting satisfaction and enjoyment? They are a gift from God. God gives. 
And the Hebrew word there is the word Nathan. We know the prophet who lived in David's time was called Nathan. It means gift. And this morning we heard about Nathaniel Jennings. Nathan, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, gift of God. Remember the word Nathan, interesting one. God gives. Now, let me trace very quickly back to 1.13. It, this is the RSV rendering of 1.13. It is an unhappy business that God has given Nathan to the sons of men to be busy with. That's a giving of judgment. In judgment. But now we see in 2.26, the beginning of that verse, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. They are given in grace. Such a difference. God gives. Take that away with you this evening. But then we look at uh, the end of verse 26. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please him. This too is meaningless. Like chasing the wind. So the passage ends. But to me, this isn't a cynical expression of God's favoritism to those who please him. But rather a contrast between these spiritual gifts wisdom, knowledge and happiness which God gives to those who please him and the meaningless chasing after the wind after material things after pleasure after amassing wealth which sinners can't keep sinners simply those who leave God out of their reckoning those who look at life from a purely human perspective you see Life becomes meaningful only when God is acknowledged. For as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So as we go into the coming week, let's Make sure that we acknowledge God in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our actions. And let's make sure that we walk close to him.